When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Paula and I wanted to thank all of you for your continued support. I also want to give a big shout out to our newest Patreon supporters. Thank you, Vicki, Leslie, Ryan R., Shirley Smith, I like this one, Tripping Balls Through History, Carrie, Callie Foster, Yvonne Allen, Justin Greer, Amanda Schmiegel, and Tanner Johnson. Thank you. For all of you supporters out there and all of our old supporters out there in Patreon land. If you would like to become a Patreon member yourself for just as little as a dollar, you will get access to early episodes, ad-free, and some extra episodes we did a long time ago that were just off the cuff. Those were fun. Just go to patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's get on to the Week in Review. Last Sunday, Paul and I brought you the now-solved mystery of Mary Jane Van Gilder, a woman who left her children and abusive husband and then vanished. Be sure to check out that episode. You will find out how it was solved. Now, on to Wednesday's Ohio Mysteries Backroads with Dan and Mike. They covered the wild life and times of drug lord Dr. Leonard Faymore, who had started a rehab clinic only to have it quickly go down a darker path. Now... Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. The Great Dayton Flood. The Great Columbus Flood, the Great Chillicothe Flood, the Great Marietta Flood, the Great Youngstown Flood, the Great Akron Flood. Many local history books dedicate a chapter to recount their greatest natural disaster. 
But if you look at the dates for each of them, you'll find out that in Ohio, they are one and the same. They all happened in March of 1913. Still the worst weather disaster to ever hit the state. Thursday, March the 20th. It's the beginning of spring, and I don't care what area of the United States you're living in, spring means rain. It's unseasonably warm in Ohio, and a storm system is tickling the border. Nothing alarming. Not yet. Spring rainstorms are to be expected. Friday, March the 21st. The system just beginning to ruffle Ohio's feathers has a powerful tail, and it's beating up the Gulf states. Tornadoes strike Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia before dawn. Nine confirmed twisters that killed dozens of people. But the Gulf is a long way off, isn't it? Saturday, March the 22nd, a couple of days of steady rain have filled the creeks and streams throughout the Midwest. The ground is getting saturated, except for the parts of the ground that are still frozen from the winter. Either way, there's no room for any new water to go. The spot where the Ohio River and the Mississippi River meet is at an all-time high. And yet in Ohio, the sun is shining. Sunday, March the 23rd. It's Easter Sunday, but nobody in Nebraska is celebrating. The storm system that was lashing the Gulf is moving up the Mississippi Valley. At 5.45 that evening, it spins off a tornado that tears through the heart of Omaha, killing more than 100 people. At the same time, another storm system from the northwest advances on the breadbasket of America. Together, the two systems corner the Midwest and create a trough. And a trough has only one purpose, to be filled with water. The storms bring with them their friends, sleet, hail, and hurricane-force wind. And they arrive in Ohio with a blast. The sun disappears and the temperature drops below freezing. Several cities are experiencing record weather events. Toledo sets one of its own, recording wind at 84 miles per hour. Monday, March the 24th, Ohio newspapers are filled with news about the tragedy in Omaha, but there is little time to commiserate. The state is already under siege. A storm born in the Rocky Mountains is on its way to join its sister storms, but even before it arrives, high winds are toppling buildings telephone and telegraph poles and overhead wires, disrupting electric services, severely limiting communications throughout the Midwest. The technological disruptions keep the U.S. Weather Bureau from collecting timely information and communicating weather warnings in advance of the storm. 
six more tornadoes strike the Midwest, including a devastating one in Terre Haute, Indiana. More than 220 people have died in this storm so far, and the worst is yet to come. Tuesday, March the 25th, the Ohio River has reached its limit. The tributaries that carry their excess water to the river have nowhere to go. All over Ohio, rivers are filling up and pouring over their banks. The Muskingum, the Scioto, the Wabash, the Ottawa. The city of Dayton was founded along the Great Miami River at the convergence of its three tributaries, the Stillwater River, the Mad River, and Wolf Creek. It was a real benefit during those early years when settlers depended on rivers for transportation. But back when the town was laid out in 1795, local natives warned the pioneers about the flood potential. The city developed its business district within a mile of the confluence of these waterways anyway. On this day, a steep price will be paid. 11 inches of rainfall, more than 90% of it unable to be taken in by the Great Miami River. It will later be said that the volume of water that passed through the river channel during this storm equaled the monthly flow over Niagara Falls. Absolutely unsustainable. At midnight, Dayton authorities see the Herman Street levee as weakening. Sirens and alarms blare to warn residents. At 8 a.m., the levee at Webster Street breaks, sending a 10-foot wave crashing along Main Street. The first floors of the downtown buildings fill to their ceilings. 14 square miles of the city are underwater. Homes are literally floating in the floodwaters, and stranded citizens jump from one drifting house to another looking for dry land. Others scale telephone poles and carefully crawl along the wires. One woman performs a tightrope walk, carrying her baby in a cloth sack. The National Cash Register Company opens its buildings as a relief center, and the company's workers set about building nearly 300 flat-bottom rescue boats. They use them to save thousands of people who are stranded on roofs and upper stories of flooded buildings. John Bell of the Central Union Telephone Company will become famous for his effort to climb to a roof and communicate the storm's activity to the world. In adjacent Butler County, the city of Hamilton will buckle under a wall of water 18 feet high, which rushes in to swamp residential neighborhoods. The Great Miami swells so much, it is indistinguishable from the water that's flowing through high and front streets. All four of Hamilton's bridges are washed away. The flood will take out 2,300 buildings there. Between Montgomery and Butler counties, nearly 400 people will die, though some estimates guess it may have been much higher. 
20,000 homes will be lost. In Columbus, the Scioto River overflows its banks and floods the near west side and parts of downtown, destroying 500 buildings and damaging another 4,000. The Town Street and Broad Street bridges are swept away. The only bridge to survive the flood was Rich Street, and it had already been condemned. The city will count 93 dead, 18 more drowned in nearby Delaware, 22 more lost in Chillicothe. For days, some of the dead will be unreachable on rooftops and stuck hanging from trees. Further north, in the Seneca County seat of Tiffin, a handful of people refuse to leave their homes as the floodwaters arrive. Witnesses watch helplessly as the house of the Connect family is carried away. A father and his two young sons clinging to the roof until they are overcome. The house of the Klingshern family is also washed away, drowning 11 inhabitants, most of them children. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Wednesday, March the 26th. In Dayton, the water crests at 20 feet downtown, filling the second floors of businesses. Then, late in the morning, the city is rocked by a new terror. Gas leaks from damaged pipes lead to explosions and fire, starting at the intersection of 5th Street and Wilkinson. The fire department can't reach the fires because of the flooded streets. An entire city block is lost. John Bell, that brave town crier on the roof, is forced to leave his perch to escape the flames. Fire is also ravaging parts of Hamilton. The colossal champion-coated paper company, six blocks long, bursts into flame shortly after midnight. The Martin Lingler Coal Yard and its buildings also burn. The Lakeview Hotel, which became shelter to dozens of families because it was on higher ground, is flooding itself, and refugees barely escape as the building collapses. In neighboring Middletown, the railway bridge over the Miami is swept away, along with scores of houses. 10,000 of the town's 18,000 residents are made homeless. 
the Ohio River town of Ironton in Lawrence County, is fighting fires as well. City officials believe the only way to save downtown is to sacrifice part of it. Several buildings are dynamited to create a fire break after they already lose a block and a half of the business district. Ohio loses something else it will never regain. It took years, decades really, of backbreaking work to build the Ohio and Erie Canal, the waterway that connected Lake Erie to the Ohio River. It will be destroyed in a single day as the flood pushes walls of debris into the narrow canal channel. Cities along the canal have to act quickly. Men on horseback race along the canal in advance of this coming monolith to warn residents what's coming. In places like Canal Fulton and Massillon, both the canal and the Tuscaroras River that feed it breach their borders, sending water racing through town and destroying much within its path. Akron is not going to wait to suffer the same fate. Fearing they might lose their downtown, they make the decision to blow up their historical canal locks, beginning with Lock 1 at Exchange Street and Locks 8 and 9 south of Market. But the act of doing that causes the pent-up water and debris to be redirected into the city's Elizabeth and Merriman Valleys, shoving buildings from their foundations from North Akron all the way up to Peninsula. When the debris-filled waterfront in northern Summit County reaches Boston Township, Residents used 200 pounds of dynamite to blow up their own dam in the Cuyahoga River to keep that wall moving north toward Cleveland. When the liquid Leviathan arrives in the Cleveland's Flats District, it rises so high it snuffs out the blast furnaces of the steel mills. The canal will not be rebuilt. No corner of the state is safe. Not a single river anywhere in Ohio is contained within its banks. In the far northeast, the Mahoning River rises to 22 feet above its normal water level, and the floodplains around Youngstown are inundated. Residents in low-lying areas lose their homes, and iron and steel mills and railroads that are concentrated along the river are devastated. Pumps at a water treatment facility fail, leaving much of the county without clean water. Thursday, March the 27th. The storm expands east into Pennsylvania and New York, and eventually onto Massachusetts, Vermont, Virginia, and Maryland. Behind it, Ohio tries to pick up the pieces. As the water recedes, the state looks as if it's been through a war. There is no federal agency to help, not then. States and local communities are on their own to handle the disaster. Ohio Governor James Cox asks the state legislature to appropriate $250,000. That's the equivalent of about $7 million today, which means, for the most part, Communities have to rally their own people for labor and donations.
There is one other resource. The American Red Cross, headquartered in Washington, is a small organization with just a few full-time employees and about 60 volunteer chapters across the country. When victims plead with President Woodrow Wilson to send tents, rations, supplies, and medical professionals, he reaches out to the Red Cross. The charity moves in and sets up stations in 112 Ohio communities. Friday, March the 28th, the damage assessment is underway and it will go on for months. We'll never know the real numbers. At least a quarter million people are left homeless. Some say the storm took 650 lives, more than half of them in Ohio. Other estimates say the number topped a thousand. For months after the storm, Bodies wash up in the rivers. In most cases, their identities are never learned. Their remains likely carried miles from where they lived. The path of devastation caused by the flooding exceeds a third of a billion dollars. Dayton, Ohio alone had $73 million in damage. That was three times the cost of what was lost in all of Indiana. As if to rub salt in the wound, a second disaster follows the storm. Outbreaks of diphtheria and typhus in several flooded areas send about 2,000 people into the hospitals. The storm and the floods destroyed hundreds of bridges and railroad trestles, 12,000 telegraph and telephone poles. The flooding stopped communications between Chicago and New York for two days. The storm also left a lot of change in its wake. The devastation caused the country to rethink its management of waterways. Ohio helped lead the way. The state passed a Conservancy Act that was signed into law in 1914. It created conservancy districts and gave them the authority to implement flood control projects across municipal boundaries. It's a model other states will follow. Congress, which once contended that floods were local events and not a national problem, passes the Flood Control Act of 1917. Over the next half a century, it will grow to include things like the National Flood Insurance Program, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, and the Federal Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act. To this day, The Great Flood of 1913 is described by weather experts as the worst widespread weather catastrophe in the history of the country. A superstorm, they say, that only comes around every 1,000 years. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every one of our episodes, check out ohiomysteries.com.
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.